Alright, so tonight we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Um, as we have been working through Deuteronomy, uh, made the point many times, we'll make it again, we're working through a section of Deuteronomy now in uh, chapters 6 through 26, uh, which is an extended commentary on the Decalogue, on the Ten Words, on the Ten Commandments. Um, a few sessions ago, uh, I was make I made the point that um, we would see these Ten Commandments, uh, the commentary on the Ten Commandments, come uh, in order. And as I have dug more into the uh, the the heart of Deuteronomy here and uh, gone through a whole bunch of commentaries, um, I have decided that. We're going to, starting with chapter 19, we're just going to move straight through uh, to 26, even though the, uh, the commandments are um, not exactly in order. So, for example, tonight we'll see, as we move through uh, chapters 19 and 20 and the first portion of 21, we will see a commentary uh, on the 6th commandment and a little, one verse on the 8th commandment. And then we'll see about a handful of verses on the Ninth Commandment. So, uh, although we are still certainly in the midst of this extended commentary on the Decalogue, uh, there is a little bit of moving around among uh, the commandments in the second table of the Ten Commandments. So, uh, just to refresh our memory, uh, if you go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we can very quickly uh, revisit the Sixth, Eighth, and Ninth Commandments, and, and I assume that as we go through uh, this evening, it'll become clear that that's what we're talking about. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, is the Sixth Commandment. It is, you shall not murder. And then over in verse 19 is the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And then in verse 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, is the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we will pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1, the last time we were together in Deuteronomy, uh, we had talked about the fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, and we saw that there were a couple of chapters here uh, that were an extended commentary on that that didn't mention father and mother at all. But we saw that honor your father and mother was a high-level summary of um, uh, obeying or respecting authority. And that's what we saw. And so tonight, as we move through especially the Sixth Commandment, uh, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, we will see a little bit of murder, but we'll see some other applications uh, of the law as well. So let's just dive in here in Deuteronomy chapter 19. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. 
Now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live, when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live." lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him, because the way is long, and take his life, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated him previously. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall set aside three cities for yourself. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be on you. Verse 11, But if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send him and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel, that it may go well with you. Alright, so obviously we are uh, talking here in verses 1 through 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 19 uh, about the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And so we see here in verse 1, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you, and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses. Again, this is an echo of the promise that was made to Abram all the way back in Genesis 15. Uh, As Israel is uh, at the end of Deuteronomy and into Joshua, they are going to move west across the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua to take over the land of Canaan. And so God says that when you get there, verse 2, you shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land. And so um, the heading in your Bible might, might say cities of refuge. So these cities that we're talking about here in the early portion of Deuteronomy 19 are commonly called cities of refuge. Right? And the purpose of these cities is, you can see at the end of verse 3, so that any manslayer may flee there. Any manslayer may flee there. Right. So there's not a judgment uh, here prior to a man arriving in the city of refuge. Right, so anyone who is guilty of any one, any kind of murder, any any a killing of another man, may flee to these cities. We'll get to the details in a bit. You see, in verse three, you shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land. So uh, these cities of refuge uh, were to be set up in the land uh, so that. A manslayer would not have to travel very far to get there. These cities were, in fact, a place of refuge. And by the way, we had already seen these back in our Exodus study. God uh, gave this same command to Moses back in Exodus chapter 21 in the original book of the covenant. So this is not new law. This is old law from Exodus 21, okay, from several decades earlier uh, in the narrative of Exodus. 
Exodus. So, and there's, they're not only uh, supposed to put these cities and space them out so that no manslayer has to go very far, but they are also, verse 3, per, to prepare the roads. And so uh, some of the uh, Jewish uh, writings, extra-biblical Jewish writings, identify that one of the responsibilities of the Levites uh, in Israel was once a year to go out uh, on these roads leading to the cities of refuge to make sure that those roads were clear so that a manslayer uh, did not have a problem getting to the city of refuge. So uh, these, these are uh, very important cities. I would note here that uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, there were three cities of refuge. These were Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. And then in Canaan, eventually, uh, when the Israelites moved west across the Jordan River and settle in Canaan, there were also three there, uh, Kedesh, Shechem, and Hebron. And so you can read about um, the three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And you can uh, fast forward to Joshua 20 uh, if you would like to find the names of the cities of refuge that would eventually be in the land of Canaan. So verse 4, the manslayer, he may flee there and live. And we're going to come back to that at the end, Lord willing. And, and the one who, who can flee there and live is the one, verse 4, who kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him Previously, And so there in verse 5, there's a little bit of case law, which is interesting, right? An example provided by Moses uh, for how one man might kill another man unintentionally. And of course, this is an example, right? This is, uh, this is an example of, uh, and there's any number of cases where this might be the case, where one man kills another man unintentionally. And so in verse 6, the concern and the reason why the cities of refuge exist for the man who, let's say, commits what we would call involuntary manslaughter, right? The concern is that the family of the man who was killed uh, would pursue the manslayer, verse 6, in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long. And again, establishing that these cities of refuge, are not, there should be short roads to these. And because the way is long, uh, perhaps the manslayer would get tired, the pursuer would overtake him, and then subsequently take his life, though, look at that verse 6, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated him previously. One thing that I wanted to point out here um, is that, um, you know, accidents happen um, in a fallen world, right? Uh, people die not just because of, of premeditated murder, but, but obviously in, in the case uh, of verse 5, um, this is uh, clearly what we would call an, an accident, right? Um, obviously ordained by God as all things are, uh, but we live in a fallen world and we are all aware, of course, that accidents happen. And so God uh, provides a stipulation. God knows <laughs> that we live in a fallen world, obviously. And so these cities of refuge uh, are a stipulation, uh, uh, really a grace uh, provided by God in a fallen world where accidents happen. 
So he goes on in uh, 8 and 9 uh, to talk about the uh, enlargement of the territories. So if Israel uh, were to ever enlarge their borders, certainly consistent with the promise that God made to Abram in Genesis 15, that their land would eventually stretch uh, all the way in the north from the Euphrates River Valley to in the south all the way to the Nile River Valley, God provides a stipulation here for three additional cities of refuge if they are needed. And again, they should be spaced out so that a manslayer doesn't have to go very far to flee there and to live. Uh, Ultimately, in the history of Israel, there were only ever six cities of refuge established. These uh, three additional cities of refuge, we have no record of them being established. Nonetheless, God is certainly providing uh, for that in in that case. And so verse 10 as a summary. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and blood guiltiness be on you. And then there's the word but in verse 11, right? And so now he's going to get to the issue, not of involuntary manslaughter, not of the accident, but he's now going to get to this issue of premeditated murder. Right? And if there's a man, verse 11, who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies. And that man, that manslayer who, uh, who is guilty of premeditated murder, if that man flees to one of these cities of refuge, verse 12, then the elders of that city of refuge shall send and take him, or elders from his, his original city where he lived, sorry, shall send and take him from the city of refuge and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. And so we see that the cities of refuge are a manifestation of God's mercy and grace, but we also see that in the case of premeditated murder that God's demand, God demands justice. And of course this is consistent with what God said all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 as part of the Noahic covenant that for premeditated murder, capital punishment is prescribed in the law of God. Very briefly, um, there's a couple of episodes later in the Old Testament um, in 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 2 where there are a couple of evil men uh, who go in to the the tabernacle of the Lord and um, they, they grab onto the horns of the altar. This would be a kind of similar type thing. They were pleading uh, for their lives. Uh, we, we would call this, you know, a claiming sanctuary, right? Even uh, just uh, not, not very long ago in our own history, uh, it was that a manslayer could go into a church, for example, and the authorities could not go into the church. The, the man was claiming sanctuary. And so they would be very similar to um, the, the, these, uh, this idea of the cities of refuge. Again, if you'd like to go look at that, that's 1 Kings 1, verse 50, and 1 Kings 2, verse 28. Okay, so there's a a little bit of commentary on the sixth commandment. In verse 14, uh, there's one verse here that is some commentary on the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14, you shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set 
in your inheritance which the, you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. And so we see here just one, one verse, uh, but, but there's a, at least one thing that I think we can see here. And we see that um, property ownership uh, is an important part of God's law uh, and an important part of the life of, of the people of Israel. And, and um, I mean, that, that's rooted in this idea as we uh, move on and uh, perhaps get into the book of Joshua. Uh, we see that the land of Canaan is divided up uh, between uh, the 12 tribes. We also know, uh, of course, there's two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan, uh, the Jordan River. And so uh, those inheritances that Joshua gives to the 12 tribes uh, is very important to them. And in fact, uh, we have already seen in our study here of the Pentateuch uh, that whenever that land was um, given to another tribe, for example, because of a debt or even a person's land uh, was given to another uh, Israelite because of a debt, um, that in the uh, Sabbath year and in the Jubilee year, uh, those lands had had to be returned to the original owners, right? And so we see again and again, and we see it here in Deuteronomy 19.14, the importance of land ownership in the Mosaic law. All right, so one verse commentary on the Eighth Commandment. Now, as we move into Deuteronomy 19.15-21, through 21, what we're going to see is commentary on the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. So let's pick up in verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so I trust that you see this is obviously uh, some commentary on the ninth commandment. We have in verse 15, again, the establishment of this principle um, that two or three witnesses must establish evidence in a trial before the Levites and the judges. Okay, extremely important. One witness is not sufficient to establish guilt. And then in verse 16 and following, you have this issue of the malicious witness, someone who is obviously out to get someone else, and they are providing false witness. You can see that in verse 18. So there is a clear violation of the ninth commandment. Right? And so then the question is, if a man or a woman uh, rises up and demonstrates himself or herself to be a liar a perjurer, a malicious witness against one of his brothers or sisters in Israel, then his or her punishment is prescribed in verse 19. You shall do to him, that is the false witness, just as he, the false witness, had intended to do to his brother. 
right? And the clear purpose for this law, right? You can see at the end of verse 19 is purging evil evil from among you. And how do you, how how does Israel purge evil from among themselves? Verse 20. The rest of Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among Israel. Right? And so we see that in this case of a malicious false witness, the punishment fits the crime and the purpose of the punishment is so that no one else will ever take this risk again in Israel to be a false witness against his brother. Verse 21, in this particular case, there is no pity, there is no mercy. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And it's interesting, uh, uh, Scott preached this past Sunday uh, from Matthew chapter 5, and and this uh, verse is quoted uh, a couple of times in the Old Testament, but Jesus actually uses this verse uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And uh, you can go and and listen to that sermon for Scott's commentary on that uh, from Jesus. Uh, But we see here that this is called the uh, lex talionis, right? The law of retaliation. And what it does is it prevents uh, escalation. It prevents escalation, right? It is perfectly just, right, to establish a man's life, one man's life for another man's life, or one man's eye for another man's eye. And so this is an establishment of justice and a prevention of escalation in Israel. All right, verse 20, we're kind of back to the sixth commandment. We're going to talk about battle against enemies. And so uh, there's, there's certainly a killing involved here. Uh, and so God prescribes in Deuteronomy chapter 20 some stipulations for when the Israelites go out to battle. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Now it shall come about that when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. And it shall come about that when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. Okay, let's pause here briefly. So we have these stipulations for preparations for battle. A couple things uh, that just to point out here. Verse 2. First and foremost, they never go to battle without the priest. They never go to battle without a man to mediate between them, the Israelite army, 
and Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And the purpose of the priest is to encourage the army and to remind them to not be faint-hearted. Verse 3, Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before your enemies, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Only the mediator between God and the people can give the army such confidence, such a good word. So, We see that, and and I think it's important. We also see in verses 5 through 8, right? So who's the man who has built a new house? Who is the man that has planted a vineyard? Who is the man that is engaged to a woman? And then in verse 8, who is the man that is afraid, right? This is extremely uh, wise counsel here uh, that, that God provides to us. Through Deuteronomy, what is God protecting against here? And I do believe these are examples. Okay, these this this, this these are not uh, all of the stipulations. And why do I say that? Because at the end of the day, men who go out to battle with the Israelite army should be focused on the goal. They should not be double-minded in any way. Right? And so these are examples of men who might go out into battle and they're not thinking clearly about the objective that's in front of them. Right? They're thinking about the house they just built. They're thinking about the vineyard they just planted. Most assuredly, a young man who is on the verge of battle is thinking about the woman that he is intent to marry in the short term. And certainly, uh, men who are going out to battle who are afraid or faint-hearted do not have their eyes fixed and focused on the objective in front of them. And those types of men who are double-minded are no help in the battle. And so the army is stronger without them. And so this is incredibly wise counsel. Verse 10, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace, And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in it, in the city, all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Alright, and so we see here that these terms of peace which are um, offered in verse 10 do not apply to the cities in Canaan or the peoples in Canaan. So these would be uh, the cities that are outside the land of Canaan proper. And we see this gracious offer in verse 10. 
this gracious offer to Israel's enemies. Remember, God is giving them the land from the Euphrates Valley to the Nile Valley, right? So there are two types of lands that God is going to give Israel under the terms of the covenant in Genesis chapter 15. And so these are terms for the peoples outside of the land of Canaan. You offer them terms of peace. If they make peace with you, then you can make peace with them, right? They become labor. They'll serve the Israelites. Um, however, verse 12, if they do not make peace with you and instead they want to make battle with you, they want to make war against you, then the Lord your God will give them into your hand. The men shall be killed. The women and the children and the animals can be taken for uh, for uh, labor and for food and for, for other things. And we see that. Okay, And it says, verse 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you. And, and what we see here is, uh, at least in my mind, as I was reading through this and studying through this, um, <coughs> the, the, the text that came into my head was, was Psalm chapter 2. Right? We see that Israel and, and eventually the king of Israel and, and all of the peoples are going to eventually uh, answer to the king of Israel. And so we see in some small way as God uh, enlarges the borders, borders of Israel, we see Gentile nations uh, who will come under forced labor and service to the king of Israel. Of course, in verses 16 through 18, God is very clear that those uh, that offer of peace is not to be given to those who are dwelling in the land of Canaan. We have seen this again and again, and so I'm not going to belabor the point here, uh, but we will see certainly uh, in the case of Jericho, uh, for example, Joshua is commanded to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy everything in the city of Jericho. Verses 19 and 20 of Deuteronomy 20. Very interesting verses. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man, that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. And so God is clearly uh, making a, a dividing line between two different kinds of trees. Trees that bear fruit, and they would bear fruit obviously annually, and they would be of benefit to Israel or the people living around those trees. They should not be cut down because they are fruit-bearing trees. However, for the purpose of constructing siege works, which is uh, very interesting, right? This is advanced battle tactics that God is prescribing here for the nation of Israel. They are permitted to construct those siege works out of trees that are not fruit-bearing trees, and so they are permitted to cut them down. Alright, let's finish up uh, here this evening. We're going to cover the first nine verses uh, of Deuteronomy 21 because we're still uh, talking about uh, the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. So, Deuteronomy 21, verse 1. 
If a slain person is found lying in the open country, in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. And it shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. And all the elders of that city which is nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive thy people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so here, obviously, we have the case of someone who is found dead, lying in the open country, and it is not clear who the manslayer is. God provides stipulations here. Obviously, uh, in the land of Israel, in this case, uh, blood has been shed, and so it, uh, and uh, it, so it has. This situation has to be taken care of. So God provides stipulations, and the stipulation is that the elders of and the judges go out uh, from the nearest city, right? And then they take a heifer uh, as a sacrifice. They break its neck and near uh, living water, running water, right? They go and the elders of that city, verse 6, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, right? And so um, this very interesting uh, ritual here. Um, David quotes uh, something like this in Psalm uh, 26, verse 6, talking about uh, washing his hands and being free of blood. Of course, we know that in Matthew 27, verse 24, uh, perhaps the most famous uh, washing of hands uh, in the history uh, of the world um, would be Pontius Pilate, who washes his hands uh, in front of the Jews Uh, to declare himself to be innocent of the blood of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And and so um, there's a lot of speculation in the commentaries about uh, why Pilate did that, um, whether or not it was a Roman custom, or perhaps Pilate, uh, who's the governor of Judea at that time, is aware uh, of this particular um, stipulation in the Mosaic Law, and so in front of the Jews, uh, as uh, part of his mocking of them, he actually takes on uh, this particular cleansing ritual uh, in front of them to declare himself uh, to be innocent of the blood of Christ, and and uh, basically placing all of the blame of the death of Christ uh, on the Jews who were crying out for Jesus' death. Of course, we know uh, that Pilate himself uh, was not innocent. He was a coward, and he is not uh, innocent of Jesus' blood, and we know that from the testimony uh, of the the, blood, um, the book of Acts, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, Acts, Acts 4, uh, where we see that Pontius Pilate is listed among those who are guilty of putting 
the righteous one, Jesus Christ, to death. Okay, as I finish up here this evening, one more comment. If we go back to Deuteronomy 19 and the cities of refuge, um, the the commentaries uh, over and over again, and and I agree with this, uh, look at the stipulations, uh, the gracious stipulations that are provided in the early portion of Deuteronomy 19 for the cities of refuge uh, as a type or a pointer to our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, a manslayer, right? Someone who is guilty, right, of of killing someone uh, can flee into the city of refuge and live as long as that sin is unintentional, right? So someone who is guilty of intentional sin, premeditated murder, we made this case as we were coming through the early portions of Leviticus, there are no sacrifices in the Mosaic law for those who sin intentionally and unrepentantly. But we saw that even in the Levitical law, there are sacrifices for those who sin unintentionally. And those sacrifices, of course, as we know, are also types and pointers of the Lamb of God, the Savior Jesus Christ. And so we see in this gracious stipulation in the Mosaic Law that these cities of refuge are pointers to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, Matthew Henry uh, points out that um, there's, there's even more grace in this idea that the cities of refuge, God, God says that no Israelite should be very far from a city of refuge, and so he sees that as an encouragement to sinners that Jesus Christ, the Savior, and his blood um, is not far from any one of us. And so we should be encouraged by that, seeing God's uh, grace in the cities of refuge as we think about the forgiveness we have uh, in and through the blood of Christ.